Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And uh, she's my mom and a librarian, and we read things, and we talk about them on this podcast that you're listening to. And this episode, we read the lit... Hold on. I want to get the actual... The, like, um, whatchamacallums. The articles in this title actually correct. It's called The Litany of Earth from the series The Innsmouth Legacy by Ruth... Ruthanna Emrys, I believe, is how you pronounce her name. Ruthanna Emrys. Okay, well, I was going to take that over and cut it out, but we're fine. You, you got me. It's called, Is it The Litany of Earth or The Litany of the Earth? It's the Litany of Earth. Of Earth. Okay. By Ruthanna Emrys. Yes. Written in 2014. This short story is part of a series that she writes, The Innsmouth Legacy, which she already has two full-length novels. This is considered a prequel, and it's available for free on Tor.com, because apparently she's a writer there, and she has... Yeah, she's one of her and uh, Anna M. Or her and Anne M. Pillsworth are the writers on their their Lovecraft reread series. I'm sure she writes other stuff there, but I think that's the big thing, and it's the most relevant to this discussion. So it's inspired, but not technically based on H.P. Lovecraft's *The Shadow Over Innsmouth*, which was written in 1931, and this it's... is often considered one of his longer works. He considered this a novella. I think it is maybe his longest work. I think the only things that would maybe uh, give it a run for its money are uh, At the Mountains of Madness and The Shadow Out of Time. Probably. But this is one of the only ones that he had that was published as like a standalone right. thing. I actually have a copy of that. I was gifted a first edition copy of The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Is it The Shadow Over Innsmouth or is it Shadows Over Innsmouth? Because I, I think that's the Arkham Press one that Argus Derleth put out that I think has a couple other stories in it too. No, this is a standalone by itself, just the just the novella. Yeah. So, and it's illustrated. Yeah, it's this is sort of a sequel to it. it. It's actually more, I think, more of a sequel than it initially appears. Because I went and I read, I think we both reread The, the Shadow Over Innsmouth. In addition to reading the Litany of Earth, I also went and read the reread series entry for Shadow Over Innsmouth, and the way she discusses it in that makes this seem like more of a direct sequel than you might get just reading the novelette itself. Do you want to give us a short synopsis of H.P. Lovecraft's story? Sure, sure, sure. The Shadow Over Innsmouth is about a Huge dork, as all Lovecraft stories are, except for that one inexplicable one he wrote about a German submarine captain. And he's coming of age, so I guess he's like 18. He's going to go to college. Yeah, he's on his way to college. And he's decided to celebrate this by taking a solo architecture sightseeing tour through New England. Seems legit. Seems like something people would do. Absolutely a personal fantasy of Lovecraft from everything I know about him. (laughs) And he is planning to go to Arkham, which, you know, is one of the big uh, recurring settings in Lovecraft's work. 
and the train is too expensive. So he ends up talking himself into taking what I guess is supposed to be like a Chinatown bus, essentially, that is run by people from this town called, this coastal town called Innsmouth. And we'll take him to Innsmouth, and then he can travel from Innsmouth to Arkham. And most of the story is him meeting people and hearing rumors. So he has a long conversation with, I think he's the clerk at the bus station, who tells him all about how Innsmouth is this foul, fell place where there's... Lots of miscegenation. This story is very, very racist. And uh there's like a... The town is run by this guy, Obed Marsh, who owns like a gold refinery plant. And he was like an old-time sailor who picked up some forbidden knowledge in the South Seas and blah, blah, blah. And then he gets to town and it's grimy and lo- almost entirely deserted. He goes to a chain grocery store and... Gets some cheese crackers. Has a conversation with the clerk there who, who is like a, uh, he's from Arkham and he was like transferred by the grocery chain and he's like, oh, this place is creepy and suspicious and like, they replaced all the Christian churches with the esoteric order of Dagon and they chased out the Freemasons, which is supposed to be distressing to us for some reason, I guess. And then he goes to stay at the Gilman house inn. First, he, the bus that he's supposed to take to Arkham is mysteriously broken down. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's forced to stay overnight in Innsmouth, which is something he was told by numerous people that he should not do. Yeah. And also, he he learns and sees that a lot of people in the town have a very fishy appearance and act very strangely. So he ends up having to stay in the town. Someone tries to break into his room. I know this is before this. He finds... An he, old He finds an man. old drunk... Named Zadok Allen, who is named after a biblical prophet. And Zadok tells him that Obed cut a deal with a monstrous sub-aquatic humanoid race that worships dark gods. And everyone in the town and his family has interbred with them and... As they age, they take on a more and more fishy appearance until they metamorphosize into one of these beings and go under the water. And they have designs on rising up against the people of the land, and they have a Shoggoth, which you don't know. We don't... He never explains what it is, but it's supposed to be scary, and they have a Shoggoth. If you read At the Mounds of Madness, then you will learn what that is. Well, the Shoggoth is a reoccurring monster in other... with many H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, it's one of the big, like, name drops that ties a lot of the mythos together. I think Cthulhu gets a name drop in this as well. Yeah. Uh, and, but the main things that the Deep Ones worship are Dagon and Mother Hydra. And then Zadok has a, looks at the ocean as a freak out. Then the narrator goes to the hotel. Then people try to break in. Then he runs out in the street. There's a, maybe the most exciting thing Lovecraft has ever written, which is this, like, desperate chase through the streets of this town as, like, more and more People and things that don't quite appear to be people converge on him. Eventually, he hides and sees a procession of the Deep Ones moving along the coast, and he faints. And then he wakes up, and he goes home, and he starts to research his own bloodline, and it turns out he's related to Marsh. And uh, he starts to embrace this transformation into a Deep One. That's actually when we learn what they're called. Uh, and he makes plans to break his cousin, 
who is also further along in his metamorphosis, out of the asylum where he's being held, and then they'll escape into the ocean to live amongst their people. And that's the shadow over Innsmouth. I think what's interesting to keep in mind, there's a couple things to keep in mind when you start to read the litany of Earth, is there's a couple sort of things that are important in the original story that become important here. And the first thing is, is there's um, a lot of depiction about this religious jewelry that the people in Innsmouth make in their refinery. Outside of Innsmouth, starts, people start to wonder about what this jewelry is. There's like a tiara and a necklace. Those things are also important in this the litany of Earth. I think they get the jewelry from the sea. It's refined into regular gold bars in the refinery, and that's how the town... That's how Zadok... Well, it seems like the town supports itself through fishing. Zadok supports his decadent colonialist lifestyle through melting down the gold of the right. that he's given as a religious offering. The book makes the Lady of Earth makes the the Deep Ones and the Innsmouth people much more sympathetic, but it never really wrestles with Obed Marsh as a character and what his deal is, which is I think is a little bit disappointing. I hope she goes into that in the other books because he feels like such a weird character now that we know more about the Deep Ones from the Litany of Earth. You get what I'm saying? Yes, but I was actually going to make a few more points before oh, we got sorry. there. I'm sorry. I got sidetracked. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Which is want to happen. So to get quickly back the jewelry, there's some characters when um, Olmstead is re- is examining his family history. He meets some of his family members and he's shown these artifacts that they keep in a um, safety, deposit safety deposit box. He goes to... He faints again. He faint, He's always fainting. <laughs> he's a Lovecraft protagonist, so he faints a lot. Exactly. And then he goes to the historical society. He sees the tiara. And then he starts to make this basic connection between the religion and these pieces of jewelry which are religious artifacts which become important in the litany of earth because there's a component that's about religion and then you realize that at the end of the story the shadow of rinsmith he talks to the government and encourages the government to raid this town because of what's going on and then in the story picks up where the town has been raided and afra marsh who is the protagonist of the story she's forced in she's first she's a prisoner mm-hmm. and then she's released and then she's forced to start a new life after her dealings with the government so it seems like this story kind of takes place right after the government raid of Innsmouth, which is precipitated I, by the actions of olmstead i mean it takes place like 20 years after right the, she's been in the they've been in the because when does when does uh shadow of Innsmouth come, come out well that was like in the 20s right it was sort of... Because they mentioned the... vaguely... He says in the story that it takes place after the stock market crash in the Great Depression. But he doesn't clearly state that it happens during the war. It... Her story takes place right after World War II because it deals with the Japanese internment camps in California. Okay. It has to take place in the 20s because the cover used for the raid of the town is it's a prohibition bust. Exactly. The other important thing is the camps. That's the other important thing from The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Olmsted mentions in the very beginning that people were put into camps. And it's just kind of a tossed off detail that he mentions. And it becomes very important in the litany of Earth. Right. So the thing that 
Emrys talks about in her reread essay on the Shadow Over Innsmouth is almost everything we learn, everything we learn about the Deep Ones in that story is told to us by an outsider. Olmstead refuses to talk to anybody who is from the town. So he talks to the cashier and the clerk and Zadok, who are all outsiders, and he gets their perspective on the town and the Deep Ones, and they tell him a bunch of sensationalist things about them. And Zadok in particular is like in a pretty heightened state of distress when he talks to him. And then the even when it switches to his perspective and he is metamorphosizing, he still doesn't have any sort of broader connection to the uh his people. It's just him like making assumptions based on his feelings and literal dreams he's having. So the litany of earth just sort of assumes that all of these people are unreliable narrators. Yeah, I think it's where this story starts out, we meet a character, her name is Aphra Marsh, and she is descendant from the Marshes, who are very important people in Innsmouth. And in fact, Obed Marsh is the reason why they have this religion, which I think they call, he calls it the esoteric. Yeah, so the esoteric order of Dagon is the organized religion in Innsmouth. She refers to it as Aeonist, but I think Aeonist is a broader term for people who's, who know about mythos stuff. Right. So she, after being, her family being involved in this raid and have, after being held captive by the government, her parents, she mentions clearly her parents were experimented on and they ended up dying in the government facilities where they were being kept she's released after a certain amount of time and has started to rebuild her life in san francisco your dad is shot i think her dad's shot as they're being put into the camps by a soldier for resisting arrest and then her mother is taken away when her metamorphosis has like really started to take hold and then she doesn't see her again after that we, we find out what happens to her later in the story but I think what's happening here is that Aphra Marsh, it's clear in the story that she was raised in Innsmouth and the religion that her family practiced is the esoteric... Order of Dagon. Order of Dagon. Uh, yeah. So she knows about the mythos. She knows about the Elder Gods and the Deep Ones mm-hmm. and she can read the ancient texts and she, she's been trained in an elemental magic that is a part of their religious practice. So when we meet her, she is working in a bookstore yes. in San Francisco, and she's rooming with a Japanese family that has had, I don't know if they were in the camps. They were. They she- were in the camps, and they're all at this process of sort of rebuilding their lives after World War II. Mm-hmm. They call her Kappa-sama, which is a nice touch. I know you had issues with the use of this sort of information about the Japanese internment camps. And I know you've had fundamental issues with the original story. Okay, so yeah. So to, so let's let's deal with that now. Let's unpack that now, and then we can It's a couple on. different things. So I'll, I'll start off with addressing the Litany of Earth, because, like, I don't know. It's a weird thing where it's like, 
I'm, I'm going to say this thing and it's going to end up dominating the whole discussion and I'm going to look like an anodonic chump who's too woke to enjoy anything. But So it's like Lovecraft writes The Shadow Over Innsmouth and the core thing that's happening in that story is that, he, and it's very gross, is he is equating whiteness with humanity. His problem with the, the reason he wants, the reason he thinks that the people of Innsmouth and the Deep Ones are scary is because they are, they have given up their whiteness and thus their humanity in exchange for survival and power. That's really bad. And so he essentially, the story is an exaggerated take on this idea that like, oh, maybe the pilgrims interbred with Native Americans. And to Lovecraft, that makes, like, the Deep Ones are stand-ins for indigenous people, and that makes them uh, scary to Lovecraft. And the thing that Emrys does is she goes like, okay, but from a modern perspective, the Deep Ones being indigenous peoples makes them sympathetic. And so, like, let's tell that story, which is I think is a good idea. But you end up in this situation where Lovecraft goes, indigenous people are monsters. And for Emrys' story to work, she has to sort of accept his, like, you have to sort of, she sort of has to take him at face value and go, yeah, but they're sympathetic monsters. And it's like, yeah, but you still, you're still equating, you're still do, doing the trick he's doing where you're equating oppressed peoples with non-humans, which is like tricky in anything. Like that's all, that's tricky in all science fiction and fantasy when you attempt to use non-human sentient races as metaphorical stand-ins for real oppressed peoples. I think, like, I don't necessarily have a problem with this story because I think this book is, the, the Litany of Earth is a very thoughtful and empathic story, but I definitely would not begrudge anybody who, you know, is, you know, Japanese or Native American, or or has experienced any sort of colonial oppression from the United States government, reading the story and going, "Yeah, but I'm not a monster. I'm a per. I'm human. Like I'm not. This isn't me." And I just think that needs to be addressed. Like that's. Just, I just think that's a legitimate criticism that hangs over this story. I think you see. So what happens in the story is you meet her and you realize she's trying to rebuild her life. She's mm-hmm. working in a bookstore. And one day, a government official, from, I guess he works for the FBI. Yeah. He, and his name is? Ron Spector. Ron Spector. He shows up and he tries to force Afra Marsh to work with him to identify... Dangerous Annis cults. Day, yes. So she's offended and she tells him that, which I think is in her right to say so... That the government has a lot of nerve asking people that they have marginalized and mistreated to now help them. And he gives her this speech about how the government realized that they were wrong. This is fantasy. This is mm. t- 100% fiction at this point. Yeah. The government realizes it was wrong and is now trying to take this approach of learning more about the cults that they're trying to you know, get involved and stop or, you know, to go undercover in or whatever he wants to do with them. So knowing that she is from Innsmouth and she has experience and she's had education in the, in the cult, the Dagon cult, 
they want her to work with the government. And at first she says, no, you're awful people. Get away from me. And then the more she thinks about it, and then he comes back, and I guess as a peace offering, he shows her the file of what happened to her mother. Yeah. And then after talking with the family and sort of hashing out this whole thing about, like, you know, this might be the path to forgiveness or for understanding or for coming to grips with what happened to them and what happened to her, she agrees to investigate this cult. So then she goes to the cult and she realizes it's basically a small religious group. There's the high priest and the high priestess and they're doing something. They're doing these sort of half-formed, half-authentic ceremonies. And then she realizes that they don't really have an understanding. They only have a broad understanding of the deep um, the deep ones and the elder gods and the understanding the magic that the, goes along with the trappings of like the worship of Cthulhu and all the other gods. Their main thing is they worship uh, Shubnigrath, the black goat of the woods with a thousand young. Right. Uh, but yeah, and so they're, they're preparing to do an immortality ritual that requires entering the ocean to live as the favorite of the elder gods. And Aphra knows that this is bullshit and they're just going to drown themselves. And so she uh, snitches on them to her FBI agent who comes and puts them all into custody. That's another thing. I did like this. I do like the Litany of Earth a lot. And I think it's really well written and there's lots of interesting ideas. The way it explores sort of magic is really cool and its take on the Lovecraft mythos is really neat. I don't super love that the story ends with our hero calling the cops on people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I think it is? She tries because... It's, she goes back to the to the cult multiple times, yeah. and she even tries to show them like this sort of um, blood magic, where she does the ceremony with seawater and the blood mm-hmm. to try to get them to realize that like the magic that they're trying to call upon is so much more sophisticated than what they know, and they're kind of like now. So I think she realizes her only option at that point is to tell on them to have that place raided. Because they are going to end up killing themselves because they don't really understand the sophisticated nature of the magic that she, after growing up in that cult, knows. Yeah, no, no. I think that she does a good job of putting Avra between a rock and a hard place. And the calling Spectre on the cult is not portrayed as like a victory. It's not like a, a wonderful thing. It's supposed to be very sad. I'm just saying that this is ultimately a story that ends with our hero asking the police to do a wellness check on someone she's worried about, which you should never do. Ever. (laughs) That is a monumentally bad idea. Do not call the cops on your friends or family members if you think they are in mental distress. Well, I think she didn't have a choice because she herself admits that her understanding of the magic, her training and education in the magic was incomplete. Yeah. It was interrupted by this raid. Mm-hmm. And I, cause there's a part in the, when she's working in the bookstore and she realizes that the bookstore owner, Charlie Day, he has been acquiring what he thinks are these sort of books from Innsmouth, the library of Innsmouth that contain the information about the magic. I don't think they're specific from Innsmouth. They're just like mythos books. Right. Cause I mean, he had, he thinks he has a copy of the Necronomicon and then, he, they, she briefly mentions the, what is this, the, the mad. Oh, yeah, they talk about Al, Al, 
uh, Abdul Al-Hazred, the mad Arab. He has a couple copies of the Necronomicon in different translations and some sort of children's practice book of magic. And then they don't mention any of the other texts he might have. But she's able to identify the books that he has been collected, the ones that are actual um, books of magic and which ones are counterfeit or copies. So she is starting to help him acquire this sort of library of material that can be used to train people to understand the magic of um, the cult. Yeah, so that's like the two things that are... The, the book switches between the present tense story of her dealing with the specter and investigating the cult and then ultimately having to call the cops on them. And then flashbacks to her having just arrived in San Francisco, getting the job at the bookstore and instructing uh, Charlie in the ways of magic and sort of inducting him further into this mythos knowledge. I think that's the most interesting part of the story. This is like... I was reading the, this, the sections where she's teaching him magic, and I was like, okay, so she definitely played Call of Cthulhu, the, the role-playing game. Because that has a way more of a focus on magic and rituals than actual Lovecraft stories tend to, because it has to be like a role-playing game. But that's not super important. But the, the way that magic is portrayed in this is really interesting. She continually characterizes it as a tool of like knowledge, and specifically like, Self-knowledge, which is more in line with how practitioners of magic in the real world think about it. Like, you know, people who do, like, chaos magic and Wicca and stuff like that. This is a much sort of more, it's weird to say realistic and grounded portrayal of magic than you get in most genre fiction. But I think that's the truth. Like, it's not a fix-anything tool. It's not a weapon like the most important magic ritual that's done twice in the story is just to like observe your own blood. Like it's a, it's a, just a, a ritual that allows like looking inward and appreciation of one's own essence, which is really interesting. And then it's also in those sections where she presents this view on, uh, the Lovecraft, the Cthulhu mythos, which is sort of like, it kind of combines it with like a strain of like weirdly like deist nihilism because so we get in all the Lovecraft stories, like the gods are big and huge and impersonal and they don't give a shit about you and their actions will destroy the earth and and everything. And humanity is going to die and be replaced with cockroach people and all, there's all this knowledge in the universe that you don't know about, and if you learned about it, your brain would break. And in this, it's that's sort of recharacterized as this, like, acceptance that the world is larger than you, and that your existence is impermanent, and these gods are sort of representations of this feeling. And then it's all tied together by this, like, belief that all the sort of record of the Earth and the people that lived on it will be carried on into the future by you know, their successors, and specifically by the Yith. And I think the biggest retconning, even more so than the Deep One stuff, which can be explained away with the unreliable narrator, is she combines the great race of Yith and the Elder Things into one being, or at least suggests that the Elder Things were the original bodies of the Yith. 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting take on the mythos. Because the litany of Earth is this history, is this like prayer or like mantra that serves as like a condensed history of the Earth that like goes through all the peoples who have and will live on the planet. And so it starts with the Yif slash Elder Things and then goes through, you know, the Shoggoths and Humanity and the Deep Ones, which is the other thing. She continually stresses that the Deep Ones are a kind of human, uh, which explains why they can interbreed. And then it cycles back around to the Yith in the future, and then everything is destroyed at the well, end of the universe. Yeah, and I think I think com- combining that element of like real-time magic with this sort of big overarching... Um, theological premise that H.P. Lovecraft comes up with. I think that's an interesting take. I think that Lovecraft also sort of hinted that there was this way to obtain this esoteric knowledge Mm. because he makes mention of things like, you know, the important specific works that he mentions in multiple stories. And then there's this also, this also, this sort of, um, I just said also twice in a row. That's fine. There's this sort of hint that at Miskatonic University, that they're in their library, there's a secret stash of material that's related to the Elder Gods that will reveal all of this hidden knowledge, but it's so powerful that humans can't even know it. And she sort of takes that sort of thought and brings it to this kind of idea that this religion, instead of being horrifying fish creatures that want to destroy the world it's almost like just some a different kind of religion Mm -hmm. and part of the reason why people don't understand it is because the information the learning of it is so sophisticated and takes such a long time we're talking about families that lived in Innsmouth that their whole family spent their lifetimes in these cults learning about this she's an adult and she says that I have I never finished my education in this, you know, in the in the works. I've never read all the texts. I can't perform all of the ceremonies. And she even mentions that she can't, there's certain spells that she can't cast and she won't cast. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also interesting too, because the people who, the cult, the mis the... Which cult? The, the cult that she's investigating. Yeah, I don't mean, they don't really have like a name, I don't think. Yeah, so it's like... Oswin's cult, I guess. Yes, Oswin and and Mildred, they are performing what they think is a is a spell for immortality, mm-hmm. and she's telling Charlie Day that there's no spell for immortality, but these small spells that they do, these blood spells, can extend your life for up to three decades. But we also so, know that you can steal bodies. Right. Because that's a big mythos thing. But that's what she says. That's the spell that she will not cast. Mm -hmm. And she tells Mildred that. Yeah. Um, I like the story. I mean, I liked... I like the premise that she was setting up. I haven't read the other books, but I definitely want to. mm -hmm. Because I'm interested in this sort of relationship between Aphra and um, Agent Spectre. I think that's sort of an interesting combination and I feel like that could lead to some really interesting adventures. I'm not 100% on board with her being... She's not a really strong female character, which I think this is sort of like... Um, 
I feel like she could be a better character. She seems kind of weak and defeated, and I kind I'm kind of hoping that in the later stories she doesn't become dependent on Agent Spectre. I don't think she's weak and defeated. I think the thing is that in this story, she doesn't want anything. She doesn't have any, like, clear goal that she's moving towards. She's just sort of, like, pushed around by, like, the forces that come into her life currently. Right. Like, she's she doesn't take any bullshit, and she, like, stands up to Bergman and Spectre, but she's just, like... She she doesn't have a goal. But I think she needs to become a full-fledged character to be able to to uh to carry on for, to carry a full-length novel. Sure. Well, um cuz it's kind of like it's a short story and it ends with her just saying I called Agent Specter and he took care of it. Well, we get a little bit at the very end of this that I think is a preview for the next for what is it? Tide of Winter or whatever, the the first The Winter's actual- Tide. Yeah, the first actual novel where she gets like a mission and that feels like more clear like okay, she's going to she wants she's going to have a goal in this. She's like there's a thing she's trying to get. Uh that should make her I think feel a little bit more immediate as a character. Uh I wanted to say that I think that this story really uh underlines how much uh, Lovecraft was writing for Protestants. Cuz sort of the central thing of the mythos is like the the universe is indifferent towards you. Isn't that scary? And it's like if you have if you're raised in this, you know, very Christian, very Protestant mindset, then that's is absolutely terrifying. But if you don't have that worldview, and the sort of the trick that this story pulls is like if you don't have that worldview, then why is that like you don't really have any why is it scary that the world is indifferent towards you? Well, that's what one of the things that I liked. Some of the things that I liked about the way that she handles the problematic history of H.P. Lovecraft. I like that she kind of just clearly stripped out the mythos. So she took the parts of the story of Innsmouth that are most interesting, that, you know, the esoteric cult, Mm -hmm. you know, the town itself, the history, the mythology with the um, jewelry and all of those sort of trappings. And she kind of left behind the parts that are most offensive about this story. Just the physical description of the way that H.P. Lovecraft describes the people of Innsmouth is offensive. And I think it was very sophisticated of her to not, she just sort of made a slight nod to like the fact that Afra has like her eyes at one point bulge out, Mm. but she didn't go into this sort of really denigrating way that H.P. Lovecraft is describing these people, how they're, hunched over walking dog like i mean he really kind of like all the vile racism that he Mm. felt for all these people he used it to describe the people who live in innsmouth and i thought it was very sophisticated not to say that the people of innsmouth are fish monsters and afra is a fish monster like she's a human being who was born and raised in that town and she is affiliated with innsmouth but she is not a monster yeah yeah I mean, that's the thing that she talks about in the reread part is like a lot of the stuff that um, Olmsted says about the people of Innsmouth are just the things that actual real life racists say about actual real life marginalized people. Like he compares their language to animal noises and their movement to, you know, gorillas and stuff. And it's like, yeah. But here's the thing about H.P. Lovecraft. He is a problem. 
He is a problem and he is a sore on the sort of history of American horror. But he is important despite his personality and despite his racist beliefs because Cthulhu and the Cthulhu mythos is so great. Yeah. So, so I, for a very long time, I had this, and I maybe still do, I don't know. I had this attitude where it was like, yeah, Lovecraft is a person that was really bad, but there's valuable stuff in those stories and it's important to write uh, stories like this, you know, like the Litany of Earth and the Ballad of Black Tom and Lovecraft Country, um, where those ideas are taken and we're allowed to explore them in a free of his racism by people who, you know, have different experiences and points of view than he does. But then I was reading, and maybe I was just in a bad headspace, but I was reading The Shadow Over Innsmouth this time, and it's just so virulently racist. Just intensely, intensely racist. And I just kind of had this moment where I'm like, maybe this is hypocrisy. Maybe this is, the whole enterprise is stupid, and we should let Swamp Thing burn down the plantation house and co-sign Lovecraft and his ideas to the trash bin. Like, preserve the stories through archival and processes and whatever, but maybe by writing these interpretations, we're just giving people an excuse to still play around with the, the power of, like, there's this Tenehasi piece about Trump called The First White President. And in that piece, he talks about white supremacy as being kind of like this eldritch amulet of power and like proximity to it is attractive to people. I think that's a big part of why like people insist, film professors and such insist on making people watch um, Birth of a Nation because it's got all this historical importance. But there's lots of other contemporaneous and earlier films that do the stuff that Birth of a Nation did. But people want to keep watching Birth of a Nation because there's this tantalizing danger in the proximity to this virulent white supremacy. And I can't help but wonder if that's the deal with Lovecraft. Maybe he's not, maybe it's not worthwhile to keep talking about him all the time because then we have to keep talking about him and keep exposing people to his really gross um, attitudes towards people of different races and and sexualities and stuff. And maybe we're better off just coming up with some new ideas. I think you're right. I mean, I, I that is a valid, thoughtful, intellectual opinion. And it, it, it makes a lot of sense. But what I'm saying is, is that whatever compels people to continue to be fascinated with Cthulhu and the Shogoth and the Elder Gods and the Deep Ones and Rael and all of those sort of components of what H.P. Lovecraft created, I think taking that and and reimagining that and taking that and empowering yourself to create a new story based on that, it does bring to light and keep relevant H.P. Lovecraft, but it also neutralizes the bad parts of it. Like, when you read something like The Ballad of Black Tom, which is incredibly well-written, it's mm-hmm. very sophisticated, it's gripping, and Victor Laval is very sensitive about, you know, the work of H.P. Lovecraft because it affects him personally. The things that H.P. Lovecraft was against 
you know, Victor Laval can, as a young man who read that, could have been like, this is bullshit. Yeah. And he was. But then he said, but there's something there. There's something there that I need to explore from, you know, from my own point of view. And I think that's interesting. And it's the same thing. There's lots of, like, historical fiction in the context of the time that it was written didn't seem that bad, but in the lens of modern society looks really awful. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, that's a problem that people need to deal with, especially some of the things. I personally have a lot of problems with the, you know, the concept and the thoughts and the ideas that are in To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. But that is considered one of the American classics. So I feel like some, we have, we haven't gotten to a point in society where we've taken those things and say, they're bullshit. They should go the way. They should be like, put them in the bin with Henry James. Like, we're done with that. We don't need to talk about To Killing Mockingbird because there are better things and more relevant things that we should be reading and sharing with each other. And I feel like, you know, H.P. Lovecraft is also one of those things. Yeah. But it's the kind of thing we talked about a lot with in the past and on the podcast where we talked about creating a character, creating something that is bigger than the book or stories that it's in, bigger than the creator, the author who wrote that. And Cthulhu is one of those things. Mm -hmm. He as a character is bigger than H.P. Lovecraft. Like we talked about that. We talked about like Pennywise and, you know, Hannibal Lecter. It seems like I'm only thinking of like horrible things. But what I'm saying is there are people who create characters like Sherlock Holmes. The character has become so much more than Doyle. Some of Doyle's works is like, you know, they're kind of like H.G. Wells, adventure stories. Those kinds of things are really fallen out of favor. But for some reason, when he created Sherlock Holmes, that character just kind of sunk itself into the popular culture. And I think, like, there's problems with Arthur Conan Doyle. He was a weirdo. Yeah, but it's like, my my thing is not, it's not necessarily that. It's I I worry that by, because I am, you know, also, I I write stuff, and I am uh, influenced by Lovecraft. Like, I just, like, it just happens. But I worry by writing these stories that reference his works and build on his, and reinterpret his works, that we're not doing this, like, important thing where we're like, it's definitely good. The stuff that stories like The Battle of the Black Tom and Litany of Earth are doing is definitely good. But is it enough to balance out the fact that by continuing to reference him and talk about how he's so important, but we're providing a smokescreen for people to just, like, read stories that are super racist. I think... Like, because they want to read stories that are super racist and without judgment, and then they can go, but everybody said he was important, so I gotta read this story that has the N-word in it. I feel the same way about R. Crumb now, where I feel like by continuing to talk about his importance, we just, we we keep providing a smokescreen for people to be like, well, I gotta read this story with this horrible racist caricature in it, because he's important. Everybody said he's important. Can't judge me for reading this. But I also think that as a society, we need to, instead of just putting those things away and letting them die down, we need to point out that we were like that. Yeah, yeah. And that we need to grow and become, 
you know, the the importance, like, I mean, the H.P. Lovecraft, he's like the three, the top three sci-fi, you know, the, the golden age, the, the, you know, the iconic sci-fi writers. Yeah. And then, so, like, he gets a lot of attention. But I feel like more attention should be given to the overall movement, the whole Weird Tales school, this sort of... Um, rebirth of American horror that's happening in the 1920s and 30s. There are other good writers. There are other good stories. There are other good books that are coming out at this time. H.P. Lovecraft gets a lot of attention because he's H.P. Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. But I think if people say, okay, let's go back and examine that movement, that time, what was coming out of Weird Tales, the precedent that he was setting, the techniques he was using... Other writers were also using them at the time. Mm -hmm. So maybe they, instead of saying, like, let's only bring up H.P. Lovecraft all the time, maybe the thing should be, let's bring up other writers. Who are the other writers that are important at the time that H.P. Lovecraft is writing? Um, shit, off the top of my head, I don't I mean, there's Clark Ashman Smith. I mean, there's the people in his circle, but I don't know if it's necessarily a great idea to... To just amplify the people that were around him, over him. It feels like then he just becomes a specter looming over every well, conversation anyway. But I think that's what it is. He has been elevated out of that school, out of that movement mm. for extra special attention. But maybe it's not H.P. Lovecraft that's important. Maybe it's that movement. Maybe it's the, the work that was being done at that time that was pushing the American horror movement further, trying to be... Their work is more avant-garde. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's like, there has to be a time where we went from Edgar Allan Poe to, like, H.P. Lovecraft. There's there's a road that got us there. And then there's a road that takes us from H.P. Lovecraft to the new horror, the new weird, you know, like, Jeff Vandermeer. Like, so there's a, there's a, a timeline of American horror and science fiction that... There are other great things on there that we could focus on, and maybe this is the start of that conversation. Sure, yeah. I'm just saying, I don't want to, like, I, I like all these, I like a lot of stories that are, are influenced by and reference Lovecraft and stuff, but I just worry that it's like, how many people are, you know, they're being sort of forced to be exposed to these, it's like, um, I'm going back to the Art Crumb thing. There was, I remember seeing a tweet from, like, a black comics creator, and I can't remember who it was off the top of my head. And they were talking about when, the, the, I think it was the Ignatz Awards recently, they referenced Crumb and he got booed. And there was, like, a bit of discourse in sort of comics Twitter about that. And she was, like, talking about, like, going into a store and there being, like, um, puppets or whatever of his, like, I can't remember her name. But the really, his really grotesque racial caricature character. And it's like, the more times we say these guys are important and their work is historically important, whatever, the more and more of a cover we provide for people who just want to play with and experience and amplify the really gross parts of their work. Yeah, I, I, that's relevant. What is your favorite H.P. Lovecraft story? Um, my favorite H.P. Lovecraft story is, um, man, I don't know. I mean, I like the stuff that's more science fiction-y. I like the Color Out of Space. I think Color Out of Space is probably my favorite. That's kind of a, maybe a sort of boring answer. I mean, I like uh, The Mountains of Madness. Um, 
I I really like Dreams in the Witch House, which is like an underappreciated one because it goes into all of this sort of like weird dreamscape stuff, and it is kind of a bridge between his Dreamlands stuff and his um, Mythos stuff because it's like. Neil Arthotep is there, and the character goes into a dream, but he sees, like, an idol of an elder thing, and it's, like, this kind of weird crossroads between all of the, the Lovecraft stuff. I, I like to, I like to think that, like I said, that it does balance out, and that it's not, it's, but I just worry. I don't, I don't want anyone to have to constantly be exposed to these sort of, like, gross portrayals of people of other races over and over again because they feel like oh it's important i have to see this and then like you know i i don't know i mean know know what i'm getting at it's just i just don't want to like i just don't want to accidentally contribute to like hurting somebody i understand that and i think that it you have a lot of empathy and i think that's important especially in this day and age but let's also go back to the to the fundamentals of this. This is a story called The Litany of Earth that is based on H.P. Lovecraft. Let's not diminish the quality of the writing of the author of this short story because she chooses to use the Cthulhu mythos in her story. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Like, this is what I was talking about. Like, now now it seems like I hated this, this story. It's 100% going to be everyone's takeaway from this discussion is Nate hated this which is not true I liked it a lot I thought it was really good and I admire her for 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 as a woman as a woman writer to take on the complicated legacy of H.P. Lovecraft knowing how he felt about minorities and different religious groups and women in general I think it's almost it's empowering it's taking on something that diminished you mm-hmm. and changing it into something that empowers you. And I think that's re- one of the really good things about these kind of mashups or these, you know, books and novellas that are inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. I think it's, I think H.P. Lovecraft would be so upset that a woman could write a story that's better than his story Based on a character that he created. Oh yeah, that's another thing I want to talk about. The Shadow of Rinsmith kind of sucks. It, yeah. It's got this reputation of being one of his better stories. And I think, like, I think it's weird that the Shadow of Rinsmith has this reputation for being, a, a like, one of his better works. And the horror at Red Hook has this reputation for being one of his lesser works. When I feel like they're uh, not that different. Yeah. Some of the, the, like, the mythos building is cool. I mean, I think that's the thing that people really take away from that, is the, like, how much it fleshes out his setting. But, like, it's mostly a story about a guy standing around while he gets jabbered at by weirdos, and then he runs away and faints in a bush. If you want to, I, the, um, the Lovecraft Historical Society, I think, does the, like, audio dramas. Mm-hmm. The audio drama of Shadow Rinsmith is much better than the the written story. If you want to experience the story, I would say seek that out because that's pretty that's very well produced and cool, um, and I think is a more enjoyable time than just sitting down with the novella. I think also if you really want to get this sort of cultural climate of these stories, it's interesting to read them in the actual 
um, weird tales. A lot of that's available on the internet. Yeah. You can sort of read it. You know, you see the drawings and everything. It sort of fits into that time frame. I think, though, you mentioned the audio dramas. Um, one of the things that I found on the internet, it's called LovecraftStories.com. They have audio books of all of Lovecraft's stories. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of experience the ones that you like. You can also find a full EPUB of his collected works on um, ArkhamArchivist.com, which is a nice compilation because they go um, chronologically. So you can read his early works first until you know you come to his later works. Oh, I also want to say, Lovecraft's description of Innsmouth, the town itself, and the sort of um, juxtaposition of this, like, Grim but realistic architecture with like the classic Lovecraft, ooh, Cyclopean spires and underwater reef city is interesting. Like that's a, it's it's probably one of his more um, gripping like locations, like yeah. Innsmouth as a location. I get that. I think that maybe is also part of why this story has a reputation that it does. I think that... But boy, howdy, is a mega racist. Yeah. Oh, God. More so than a lot of his stuff, I think. Yeah, and I think some of the the ways that H.P. Lovecraft writes and the tropes that he used have been co-opted by other horror writers. He has a good understanding about, like, setting that tension, that sort of fear, that building of fear, that, and that kind of, like, um, off-putting creepiness. He's really good at, at writing like that, mm-hmm. so that you fear. You know, you feel the fear that's this creeping, impending doom. I think that's used a lot in modern horror, and he he might have been really good at doing that. I think the thing with Lovecraft is he was such a bad person that his in the in an inverse of almost every writer, his stuff is better the less personal it is. The more and more it's, he has abstracted his own personal experiences and feelings, the better the story yeah. is. That can be said for a lot of writers, though. But yeah, but it's like, I think this story is very, The Shadow of Rinsmith is very personal because he's him dealing with like a lot of these personal anxieties about his own family and like the history of mental illness in his family and uh, being afraid of going to new towns. <laughs> and it's bad and like horror of, of red hook is the same thing part of why that story is so bad is it's so very explicitly about his fear of new york as a city um but then you get stuff like the color of out of space and uh call of cthulhu and the haunter in the dark where his general feelings of paranoia and anxiety are abstracted out and applied to these weird alien concepts and they just they're much so much better well, I think also that a lot more people can relate to that sense of disenfranchised, you know, franchise feelings than they can of his sort of problematic views about women and different races and non-Christian religions. Yes. Yeah. Even though yeah. he clearly doesn't like his work is clearly like not does not have a Christian perspective, but it's like Still, I don't know. He's such a weird, complicated guy. Well, I, <laughs> that's exactly, that's the the last line that I have on my notes is, it's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Question mark. 
I feel like, I mean, this Ruth Anna. Ruth Anna, maybe. Ruth I think Anna. That's how you say it. I think she she's a very good writer. Yeah. And she's great at set, the same thing, setting that pace that sort of draws you into that story. And just after reading this short novella, this longest short story, whatever, however you want to call it, it's interesting enough to me to make me want to read those full-length novels. Yeah, I think her interpretation of Lovecraft's world is really compelling. Like I said, like... I like how empathic this book is. Like, it's full of characters that could be totally unsympathetic or one-dimensional. There's a grumpy bookstore owner, there's an FBI agent, there's a cult leader. And every one of them is imbued with some sense of, like, humanity and vulnerability that is really compelling. And that makes sense because if the premise of your story is what if the Deep Ones were sympathetic, then you sort of do also have to apply that to everybody else. And I like the little touches of the world. There's this part where she's talking to Charlie Day about the Yith. And he's like, did you ever meet one? The Yith are such a weird and interesting concept in Lovecraft's stories that really, I think, only ever come up in... There may be referenced a bunch of other stuff, but basically only ever come up in The Shadow Out of Time. They're like body-hopping, time-traveling, super-scholars... And she tells this short story, Afra tells this short story about how her mom, as a child, met a Yith scholar who was taking field samples in a swamp. And it's like, I kind of want the just like Faulkner story about her mom's childhood in this weird town where she's like this precocious little kid who, who like also is eventually going to become an immortal fish monster. Well, I feel like if you, as much as you want to push H.P. Lovecraft into that, like, it... it... This is to be clear. I personally want to push H.P. Lovecraft, the person, into a dumpster. Right. But I think, (laughs) well, I think there's going to be, in in the very near future, it's going to be very difficult to do. Because HBO just announced that they're making a TV series of Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country. I thought it was AMC. Is, is it AMC? I think it's AMC. It doesn't really matter. But so that is going to be probably a huge success because that the novel is very interesting. And if the TV series is done well enough, it'll be a very interesting. Isn't there also an adaptation of Ballad of Black Tom coming? Yes. Which I have to say, if you are like, I want to read something that's based on H.P. Lovecraft's mythos and I want it to be really good. That's what I would recommend. Yeah, I think that's the best. I've read a ton of, like, other writers' takes on the mythos and reinterpreting his works and stuff, and that's probably, one's probably my favorite. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I'm, I'm gonna be real with the audience. Like, I, earlier this week, I got some pretty, um, bad personal news, and then, so I've maybe been in kind of a dark headspace, and maybe I wouldn't be so, um, pessimistic. Otherwise, I don't know. Like I said, I do generally think those things are good. I just worry that maybe the bad outweighs the good. I don't know. I'm trying to think of this compilation short story book that I read that was modern writers interpreting H.P. Lovecraft. And all I remember vaguely was there was a Neil Gaiman story in there. Is it not the Sherlock Holmes one? The only Neil Gaiman Lovecraft story that I know of is The Study in Emerald, which is his weird 
Sherlock Holmes story where the royal family interbred with the Elder Gods. I'll have to think about it. Oh, there's also I, Cthulhu. But this was a short story compilation that had a couple different stories. Yeah. Which I, I have to really, I can't, I cannot remember the. Well, hold on. I, mm, maybe it wasn't. Because I looked up I, Cthulhu on the Speculative Fiction database. But the only publications they have for it are on Tor.com and in a magazine and on like a French version. So it might be a different story. Yeah, I don't know. So other than that, what have you been reading? Anything interesting or? Um, what have I been reading? Uh, I just started, I'm like barely, I'm like three or four chapters into it. The Long Earth, which is like a science fiction, uh, novel that Terry Pratchett co-wrote with Stephen Baxter. That's like about, it's like about multiverse stuff. It's okay so far. It feels very ring world-y. Like I'm just at the beginning and it's like. We're going to have a mission. We got to recruit this weird specific guy to go on the mission into the long earth. That's all I've gotten to so far in it, but I'm, I'm digging it. I'll, I'll report back uh, when I get further on. Have you watched the Good o- Omens TV show? No, I'm, like, I'm bad at watching stuff. I watched it. I enjoyed it. It was very good. I doubt we'll see an adaptation of the long <laughs> earth anytime soon because it's like it seems like it would cost a lot of money because... It's set on a series of totally uninhabited Earths, and also one of three characters I've met so far is a talking vending machine. Sounds like a Terry Pratchett novel. Yeah. What have you been reading? I just finished, it's a new novel, came out in 2019, by Ian McEwan called Machines Like Me, which has gotten a lot of buzz. Some of it is negative. He had that really bad interview where he was like... Science fiction isn't about ideas or society. Like, well, that was him, right? Yeah. So this story, which, it's an interesting book. So it's set in this sort of alternative world, which is also in the 80s in England. So, so what it is is that in the 1980s in England, when England is getting involved in the Falcons' War... There's also this added component of there's this idea that Alan Turing doesn't die. He doesn't commit suicide in the 1950s. He ends up living and he becomes this almost like combination Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, where he becomes very important in computers and artificial intelligence. And because he doesn't die, he ends up pushing this sort of technology that we have now back earlier happening in the 1980s. So it's 1980s in England and they're getting ready to go into the Falkland War, but they have social media, they have artificial intelligence, they have high speed computers, they have um, internet, but you know, advanced above modems and things like that. So it's a very highly sophisticated technology society like we have now, but it takes place in the 1980s. So there's these two sort of intellectual um, wasteabouts, Charlie and Miranda. And Charlie decides he wants to buy an android. So they buy this new cutting-age android whose name is Adam that Alan Turing is developing. Mm -hmm. And they influence the personality of Adam and, and, 
Adam influences their personalities and like typical Ian McEwan characters. They're horrible people. Mm-hmm. And the morally ambiguous and the robot is very moral and very sort of... Is it A-D-A-M or A-T-O-M? Adam, A-D-A-M, like the first man. Okay, so this is not a Astro Boy <laughs> reference. Does no. he have a machine gun in his butt? No, he just ends up being like this sort of pompous intellectual robot that has a high moral compass. And Charlie and Miranda don't. So he becomes this sort of moral judge of them and they end up they don't like that and they end up like destroying him because he's not what they wanted Mm -hmm. they don't sell him to a circus and then he gets bought by a kindly professor no okay but i think the thing is like there was a sort of article where he sort of said you know he McEwen always claims to be an intellectual writer he's a literary fiction you know he's the atonement guy right yeah he writes these novels that get a lot of acclaim and he wins all these awards and then he decides at one point he wants to slum it and he's going to write an alternative history slash sci-fi novel and then he wants attention for doing this and when he gets attention for doing this it realizes that it might hinder his reputation as a literary writer so he starts to say like you know he's going to like change sci-fi or you know and make things like, claims that, like, he's taking the genre of sci-fi, which I guess to him is a plebeian genre, and he's going to upscale it into this sort of better oh, the thing version. That he, the thing that he said was, call me a science fiction writer, and I'll come to your house and nail your pet's head to a coffee table. That's stupid. But it's kind of like, it's the whole thing, like, Vonnegut being like, I'm not a science fiction writer, but I'm going to write a full-fledged science fiction Well, novel. I think Vonnegut was cooler about it. I mean, he literally made yeah. his author stand in. A unsuccessful science fiction writer who has to, like, Kilgore Trout is very clearly Kurt Vonnegut, and Kilgore Trout has to, well, he's also Theodore Sturgeon, but he, he has, you know, he does write science fiction very explicitly. Um, I also, uh, nail your pet's head to a coffee table is bad writing. Like, yeah, it's like, think... what are you, making t-shirts for Hot Topic in 2005? Are you gonna stab me in the eye with a French fry? Foamy the squirrel? But I think his thing is he's trying to be provocative. But he also, I mean, he just doesn't really understand. He sounds like a dork. Here's here here is my take on this. Mm. The novel is interesting. It's not interesting as an alternative history, and it's not interesting as a science fiction. And but what I think it is is that he is a man who is aging. Sure. And just like a lot of writers who are aging, you know, like Cormac McCarthy and Thomas Pynchon and... Cormac McCarthy should write a science fiction story. Um, I think that this novel is about their, about them aging and how they feel about technology and how disgruntled they are. Because some of the things that he's disgruntled about, like technology excessive political correctness oh, um no. really greedy younger generation that kind of stuff ungrateful upstarts this is all like parts of it and then his whole kind of thing like he feels that he should be relevant because he did it first and i feel like that's like it's kind of like this sort of entitled old statesman writer like you know almost he consider he doesn't say this anywhere but i think he really considers himself like a writer like the caliber of like 
Hemingway or Faulkner, and he is not getting the respect that he deserves at this point. So I feel like he's sort of punching out, like, with a lot of, like, petty, like, old man complaints. And I think that this is what this this novel is. He's talking about the 1980s because that's where he feels most comfortable. Mm-hmm. But he's complaining about things in the modern society that he doesn't like anymore. Yeah. You know, he's like that old guy that has the latest iPad, but it's complaining about a younger kid who's like addicted to looking at his phone all the time. Yeah, that sounds insufferable. Did you see that uh, piece I was going around recently where somebody was like, I've decided to become a boomer cartoonist and it was a drawing of like a man and a child and a man said, I hate my wife and the child's holding a book and he says, father, I cannot click book. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's like, that could be the cover of this. I cannot click book by Ian McKeon. <laughs> it's like, we know you're mad that your grandson knows more about your iPod than you, your iPad than you do, but you don't need to write a whole novel about it. I think the best part of the novel is they decide that like, there's this like conflict. Miranda has this conflict where she does something in her past and he, Adam, the computer, uncovers it. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes, Adam thinks it's a legal issue because she lied and someone got sent to jail because of her lie. Mm-hmm. But according to Charlie and Miranda, there were extenuating circumstances that forced her to lie. But the robot only sees it as she lied so she should go to jail. So he reports her to the jail, to the police. So at one point, there's a scene so which the is... the robot's a cop. Yeah. He's kind of like a square. So there's this one scene where they're talking about it and then Charlie gets mad and, and typical like John Cheever-esque kind of element. He just gets a hammer and hits the robot in the head and in essence kills it. So there's a great scene where he's trying to take the robot back to Alan Turing and he can't because he, he knocked it out and he can't carry it and it weighs so much. He ends up putting it like in a wheelchair and just like pushing it down the street to like get rid of this robot. His ultimate goal is to take it back where it came from. So like what is, what is the, what is McEwen's like take on AI? What is he trying to say about artificial intelligence? It's awful and judgy and he doesn't like it. Okay. It's weird Mm -hmm. that you would take an alternative history and your alternative history would be like. This takes place in England during the Falkland Wars. Like, he's talking about, like, social media and Margaret Thatcher. Like, he's complaining about two things at the same that's kind time. Of a, I think that's an interesting idea. Maybe it's not super well executed in this. There's a, um, there's a, uh, an artist. I forget his name. It's, he's a um, Scandinavian of some description. It's Simon something. Yeah, so, Simon, um... Okay, Stalenhag? How do you pronounce an A with a circle on top of it? (laughs) Not an umlaut, like a little, just like a circle. I don't know how you pronounce it. I think it's Stalenhag. He makes these paintings that are these uh, very nostalgic uh, landscapes of, you know, that are clearly set like somewhere in the past, around the 80s or the 70s, but with uh, spaceships and robots just sort of strewn about. Right. Like this advanced technology uh, contrasted with this sort of yearning nostalgia 
Uh, and they're really cool. And there's like multiple, there's a, an RPG called Tales from the Loop. And then there's another one called like Things from the Flood or something like that that are based on his stuff. There's also a board game, I believe. I think it's called Scythe that's based on his work. And I think that idea is really interesting that like, we always think about like, what is the technology going to do to us in the future and do to society in the future? But I think it's just as valuable to ask like, what would it have done in the past? Because that's, you know, science fiction is always about like today and the anxieties of today. And if part of the anxiety of today is we're fixated on the past, which we are, you know, see stranger things and others uh then using science fiction to explore that those concepts of nostalgia is a really or even regret not necessarily the nostalgia is like a valuable tool i think for this author he's kind of a little bit offended that people think the 1980s is the past but it's like it is the past. Yes, but I think for him as a man who is he's in his seventies now. So he's aging into this sort of time where he's he's not the most relevant British writer of the time. And mm-hmm. I feel like this hurts him hurts his ego, and I feel like this book is him expressing that ego slight that he feels. This is a big question, you're probably not prepared to answer it. Can you think of a writer of this sort of school, of the, like, serious white male writers who handled aging well, who, like, managed to write? Because we've talked about, you know, Saul Bellow and now this. And it's like, is is there one that got it right and, like, wrote I don't think that a great novel in their old age that dealt with their old age? I think the writers who were relevant in the 80s and the 90s don't know how to do that. So I don't think that anyone who is active still can is writing that well. Someone can prove me wrong, then I would like to be proven wrong. Yeah. I mean, I guess he's not that old. I was going to be like, is is Lincoln and the Bardo this story that I'm looking for? But he's only... Saunders only like 60. I think he would be the kind of person that this man is jealous of. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like some every time like a young upstart millennial writes that perfect novel, then that sort of chaps him a little bit. Yeah. And I feel like he does sort of have that like he was like, I want a man booker. I can write a science if science fiction is the thing, I'm gonna write a science fiction and it's gonna be in your face. It's gonna be about a mean robot it's, that snitches on you. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I I read, like, just in 2016, he wrote Nutshell, which is a novel that I constantly talked about when Mm. I read it, which was very interesting and provocative. This sort of seems just very, like, mean-spirited and spiteful and grumpy. Yeah. I didn't even mean, like, specifically of that, of the school that he's a part of. I just meant, like, in general. Is there, like, a a A, a praised male writer and quote-unquote important writer that managed to like thread the needle and write something really great and not shitty and self-centered in their old age i think if you read and i and if you read john updike's rabbit his Mm -hmm. that sort of overarching rabbit the last book specifically deals with 
rabbit aging and in becoming irrelevant in his own life and how he deals with it. And I feel like he did a really good job of taking like this young viral, you know, he was very macho, very manly, very kind of like of the time when he started writing the rabbit series Mm -hmm. to take him from like his young, like most important time to move him to like his old age. I feel like that like was very successful. But, like, I talked about this a lot, like, with the early John Irving, which was, like, so perfect. Mm -hmm. And then this later John Irving, which is kind of weird and rambling. And it's the same thing. There's this, like, element of, like, bitterness that sort of permeates the works. I mean, that was the same thing when we were talking about uh, what kind of data you have. Like, the overwhelming thing with that story was it was so bitter and antagonistic towards other writers and artists and stuff. And that feels like a recurring thing that happens with these dudes. I'll tell you one. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I'll tell you, like, um, I don't know if he's aging well or he's authentic and truthfulness in his aging. Is the series, Stephen King's series, the Mr. Mercedes series where he wrote the three books about the aging detective that is involved in solving this sort of... It's like a trio of books. Yeah, but even he has his stuff that's like that. Like, the later um, Dark Towers books are kind of masturbatory. Right. Like, he literally becomes a character in them. He's not. He doesn't go full Shyamalan on it, but it's not far off. All the examples I can think of are from dudes in their 60s. Because the other thing I was going to bring up was Jitterbug Perfume as being like a later story that's about aging and dying that isn't like bitter and shitty. But again, I think uh, Robbins was like 60 when he wrote that. Because he was, because that's like 1986 and I think he was born in the 30s. I think it depends on the the author and their personalities. Like, Robbins is, like, he's very self-aware, very open, very, like, sort of um, permeable. Like, he mm-hmm. he sort of reflects society at the time. But I feel like Ewan McGregor is kind of, Ewan, Ian McEwan, I'm sorry. Not <laughs> Ewan McGregor. <laughs> <laughs> that is, like, an old person thing right there. A hundred percent. He's sort of ecstatic. Yeah. He doesn't want to change himself. But he wants to be recognized for the fact that when he was younger, he tried to change things. He is also, why is he so hung up on snitching? I, mean, I was just thinking about that, because that's a big part of atonement, too. It's a big part of Nutshell, too. Huh. There's something there. I don't know. I don't know if I have the patience to do a critical critical exploration of snitching in the works of Ian McEwen, but <laughs> it's there for somebody to do. There's your PhD. <laughs> I feel like if you're going to write a science fiction novel... Then it's like he never read one. It's, well, that's how he acted in the interviews and stuff. <laughs> because he's a literary genius. He doesn't have time to sit there and read weird tales. You know, he's having deep thoughts about morality and <laughs> snitching. <laughs> <laughs> he, that's how you know the dude's a baby boomer. <laughs> it's all about calling the cops. Uh, it's exactly filing it. noise complaints. He's calling the cops on his grandchildren because they're spending too much time on their phones. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like if you want to read an alternative history, there's something better. Oh, there's lots of stuff to read. Um, read fucking, what's it called? 
the Colson Whitehead one. Oh my god, yeah. What is the name of that book? The Underground Railroad. Yeah, The Underground Railroad. Read that. It's like he read that and he got mad. I'm going to do this for worse. <laughs> He's like, I can't believe this guy wrote this book. Like, like I can imagine like an older male writer who's starting to feel like irrelevant. Like, just reading all these great novels that come out and being like totally upset about it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Old people suck. They should they should take away your uh, laptop when George you turn. George Martin is is aging, and he doesn't seem to be like. Yeah, but I mean, he's a, he's not lashing out at every other person who's writing a better yeah. fantasy novel than he's writing. Sure, sure. He's also just not writing, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he is. He's just going very slow. I mean, I think that this is such a wild. I don't know, wild diversion to talk about George R. R. Martin, but I feel so much like I feel so bad. Not so bad, but I, I feel a lot of uh, sympathy anytime somebody's like, why aren't you writing? Finish the book. And then the fact that it's always framed with like, what if you die before the book is finished? And it's like, no one wants to hear that. Why would you want to, why would, stop telling him that he's going to die. <laughs> I, read, I read an article about Stephen King because two of his sons are writers. Yeah. And he was saying in that, he when he writes a story, he writes an outline so that if he dies, one of his sons can finish the story. Oh man! And it's kind of like he's like, does he every time he starts up this computer, he's like, I might not live to finish this. Well, that I remember reading. It really bombed me out reading an interview with George R. R. Martin about um shit. What's it called? Fire and Blood, the Targaryen history yeah. book. And he was saying that like, oh, you know, there's all of these stories in these like little details and stories in here that I would love that I'm never going to be able to write as full length stories. And like because you know, he just doesn't have that much enough time left on this earth. It would take him like 30 years to write all these. And just that thought of being like the I've always been afraid of aging and dying, but the I had never considered the idea that like at some point you're I'm going to have an idea that I'm just not going to be able to execute because I'm going to die before I finish it. And that's awful. I don't like thinking about that at all. Well, I mean, there's <laughs> talking and thinking about your own mortality and then taking it out on somebody else. So yeah, that, yeah. that's what I think a lot of these writers are doing. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it sounded like it was really negative about this book, but it was kind of, it was interesting, but... Is it better or worse than Sightine? <laughs> I think he might have read Sightine and we, then be like, this is science fiction. Now let me write a science fiction novel. If if that's your if that's your example of science fiction, I could see how he would end up saying the things he said. <laughs> Maybe that's mean. We definitely need to, we at some point need to do one of our other books on the podcast to make up for dunking on her so much. I I think I said this many times. I really like Down Below Station. Yeah. I, let, I read that like nonstop. I just started that and I was so good I finished it. And then I was kind of like, oh, yeah, this is this is good writing. And then I read Sightine and I was like, is this like a government document? Is this like a textbook about like future science? I have no idea what this is. It was so weird. Yeah. No, I totally get that. Um, do we have anything else to say on this episode? I don't think so. I think what done. are we reading next? Uh, well, we're going to do uh, Saga of the Swamp Thing, Volume 4. 
That is uh, the next episode. And then uh, after that, we're going to do Billy Bud Sailor by Herman Melville. So cue up the old-timey sea shanties? Yeah. Or that one Decemberist album? Or any Decemberist album. <laughs> except for that one that's supposed to sound like an R.E.M. album. Okay. All right. Uh, spoiler alert. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.